Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Hello, welcome to another episode of Cerebral Faith Live. I'm Evan Minton, and tonight we're going to be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Normally I begin these um, these presentations with my face full screen, and then I pull up the slides, and I go through the slides, but since we had so much trouble last week with the slides working, I decided I would just pull them up, get them working. I did this 30 minutes in advance. Hold on, the cat wants out. Go on. And I just decided I would just keep it like this because I didn't want to um, go through go through all that brouhaha again. I, I had like seven minutes that I had to clip out so that people watching it on playback just didn't have to, to watch me trying to sort through my technical issues. Uh, if you are listening to this, uh, if you're watching this live on YouTube as it is streaming, I recommend that you put your questions in the live chat and I will get to them at the end of the presentation. As usual, I will not get to them during the presentation because that's that would just be too um, strenuous trying to do those two things at once, trying to answer questions and go through the talk at the same time. But there will be a dedicated portion at the end of the slides where I will take questions from the live chat. So, uh, and if you're listening to this uh, on the Cerebral Faith podcast in audio form later, um, well, too bad for you. Uh, you can't submit your questions uh, live because the audio podcast is not live. Um, so let's get into it. We're going to be going into part three. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Attitude Toward Old Testament Law. Now, this one's going to open up a huge can of worms because there is this whole movement that it goes by different names, uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement, um, R.L. Uh, I can never get his name right. <laughs> R.L. Sp uh, Sprolberg or some, <laughs> something. He calls it Torahism. Uh, it's basically modern-day Judaizing, which um, it te teaches we are supposed to continue to observe Torah. All the, you know, not just thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. The moral aspects of the law, but even the ceremonial and cleanliness aspects of the law, such as don't eat shellfish and don't shave. That's would be kind of disappointing if I couldn't shave because I have been considering maybe getting rid of this beard soon. I don't know if I'm going to do it yet or not, but um, you must not trim the edges of your beard. Well, that, okay, I can't only shave it off, but I have to have a really long one too and look like I'm from ZZ Top. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Judaizer, there was a guy, there was a person on the Cerebral Faith Facebook page, he was surprised that it's, that that's even still a thing, that Judaizing is even still a thing. It is. And I even had a Facebook conversation with one uh, yesterday, fortuitously. So we are going to be talking about, does Jesus teach that we're still to obey 
all of the Torah, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the part about loving your neighbor and loving God, and but even the things concerning shellfish and mixing fabrics and all that. Um, I kind of got ahead of myself. Yeah, this is where we are currently in the series. It's a 12-part series, and uh, we're in part three. First week, we looked at the Beatitudes. Second week, we looked at what it means to be salt and light. And uh, I'm doing this every Saturday night at 8 p.m. now. It's not moving around the calendar like it was, so that should help you, give you some kind of idea of when you should uh, ought to show up. Um, after that, we're going to do what adult... Part one is the Beatitudes, already covered that. Part two is what it means to be salt and light, covered that. Part three is what we're talking about tonight. And then part four, we're going to deal with anger and thought crimes, followed by what adultery is and is not, then divorce, oaths, loving your enemies, on keeping our deeds, uh, good deeds secret, prayer, the antidote to anxiety, um, and whether Jesus is an arrogant preacher or God on the mountain. So let's get into the passage in question, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. It says, quote, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. So that's the passage. And now we're going to get into what did Jesus mean? Well, first, I don't think he meant, like a lot of Torahists uh, say, that we, he didn't mean we, we are still under the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. That's what a lot of the Hebrew roots people will want to try to argue, that the law of Moses is not going, is, it's not going anywhere, and Jesus said that, and so we are still under it. It's important that we interpret scripture in light of scripture. That is a, a key rule in biblical hermeneutics. If you see one Bible verse that contradicts multiple clear passages, then you should re-examine how you interpret the aforementioned. If you have Bible verse A that seems to contradict Bible verses B, C, D, and E, and B, C, D, and E are pretty clear on what they're saying, and you've really looked at the at passages B, C, D, and E very closely, then you should interpret A in the light of B, C, D, and E. Let's take a look at a few biblical passages that say that we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. And by Old Testament law, I mean specifically the ceremonial and sacrificial parts. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29, quote, Brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, as one would in referring to many, but rather in referring to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. 
so as to nullify, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added on account of the violations, having been ordered through angels at the hand of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Far from it. For if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been. But, be, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, which bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Because she is in slavery with her children, but the, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And I know I don't know if I should go over uh, this this commentary of, of this passage or not. Maybe it, we might we might run a little long if I do. Um. Yeah, I think I'll go over it. Uh, R. Allen Cole, in his Galatians commentary, says, quote, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 22, to Paul's apparently innocent inquiry as to whether they were prepared to hear and obey the law, no doubt the Galatians, especially after listening to the Judaizers, would have given an indignant yes. After Paul's stress on their newfound, oh, I should have, I don't, for those listening on audio, did I say what passage I'm reading? I'm reading Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. That's Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. I got, I got to remember I have a video and an audio audience. Uh, anyway, R. Allen Cole, his, uh, in his commentary about Galatians, and uh, part of the Tyndale New Testament commentaries, he, he writes this, quote, 
Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 22, to Paul's apparently innocent inquiry as to whether they were prepared to hear and obey the law, no doubt the Galatians, especially after listening to the Judaizers, would have given an indignant yes. After Paul's stress on their newfound desire to come under law, they could hardly say otherwise. Paul now turns to the law with something of his old relish as a student of Gamaliel. He begins with the time-honored Jewish formula of citation, taken over by Christians. Gragrapatai gar, for it is written, traditionally introducing the vital proof text. But Paul's use of the law will su surprise these Galatians, and possibly their teachers as well. For within that law, Paul will again appeal to Abraham, not to Moses. It is sometimes forgotten by Gentiles today that when a Jew refers to the law, he includes Genesis as much as Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And so, of course, does Paul. If the Torah is the instruction of God to his people, then history, the story of the saving acts of God, has just as much place in the Torah as legislation. For the same reason, later historical books were classed among the prophets. Undoubtedly, however, the Judaizers had laid more stress in Galatia on the ritualistic and legal legalistic aspects of the law. Uh, this would be a flank attack by Paul. Galatians 4.23 as with all the stories of Genesis, there was much Jewish speculation in connection with the two sons of Abraham and the details of the story of Sarah and Hagar. This need not detain us, except to note that Paul is not choosing some obscure passage, but one which was a familiar battleground for Jewish exegesis. First, Paul runs quickly over the details of the story, with which the Galatians may not have been as familiar as he. When he says that Ishmael was born Katasarka, according to the flesh, he probably limits his meaning to in the ordinary course of events. What he means is that no miracle was necessary, and no special promise of God was involved. Whether he is blaming Abraham for taking the secondary, lot, well, secondary wife out of lack of faith is not certain. There is certainly a contrast between the birth by natural means, as we would say, and the birth of Isaac through promise, but even if he had blamed Abraham for this, no Jew would object to Paul doing so. Some rabbis so taught, and Katasarka could have the nuance of sinfully. Galatians 4.24. So far, not the most ardent Judaizer could disagree with Paul, not even when he says that these things are allegorumina, an allegory in the corresponding English form of the word. Most Jews were quite ready to treat the Old Testament in this way. Philo was the extreme example. The only question is, what do these two women stand for allegorically? There is plenty of evidence in pagan literature for the use of this verb in the sense of to speak allegorically, so B-A-G-D. It is doubtful if Paul is using allegory in any highly technical sense to distinguish it from other types of simple exegesis known to Jews and later amplified by Christians. If he were doing so, such finesse would probably have been wasted on the Galatians. Nor does he wish to deny the literal truth of the story, as some allegorists might do. His sole concern is to show the Galatians that, behind the plain meaning of the words, there is to be found the exemplification of a great spiritual truth. This truth, this divine principle or type, he finds demonstrated on a larger scale elsewhere in God's dealing with his people, and he proceeds to show where and how this is. 
A little reflection will show that since God is changeless and since these spiritual principles are therefore also changeless, this is not an arbitrary form of interpretation. What Paul is offering is again more of an illustration than a proof, as is usual with him in such cases. Some might, object, some might object that the chief actor in the Genesis story is not God, but Abraham, and that Paul, by using this illustration, is thus arguing not from God to God, as we might say, which would have been quite legitimate, but from Abraham to Abraham, uh, but from Abraham to God, which is illegitimate. In reply, it could be said that Abraham, in his life, exemplifies the two possible human attitudes toward God, faith and unbelief. This is the main point of the allegory, and if this is kept central, all else will fall into place. After all, illustrations have no fixed rules governing, governing their form. Unbelief and faith, natural and spiritual, earthly and heavenly, below and above, slavish and free, there are many pairs of opposites used in the passage, but all have this one root. It is only when Paul applies the same distinction to the two covenants that the Jews would sharply disagree. Indeed, to the latter, the very concept of two covenants was abhorrent. There was only one God's eternal covenant with his people, one and the same, Ezekiel 37, 26. The new covenant to them was something eschatological, still to come, belonging to the age of Messiah, Jeremiah 31, 31. What they could not believe was that this day had already come without their noticing it. Confer Luke eleven twenty with his use of epthasin, come unexpectedly upon you. Now, if we follow this line of reasoning, we can see why the Jews are, are compared by Paul to Ishmael and his descendants, not to Isaac and his seed, as any rabbi would have compared them. Certainly they are children of the covenant, their own proud claim, but they are children of the covenant made on Mount Sinai, not of that made with Abraham, which foreshadows the covenant of Christ. Paul has already shown that to try to win salvation by keeping the law is to enter a hopeless and fruitless bondage. Yet this is the bondage inevitable to the Jew. That is why this covenant is described here as bearing children for slavery. This was uh, doubly appropriate in the ancient world, for the children of a slave wife were themselves slaves, unless the husband and master acknowledged them as true sons. Of course, it was not inevitable that the Jews would serve in this slavish way. They were Abraham's seed and therefore children of the covenant with Abraham as truly as they were children of the covenant with Moses. But as long as they looked on the law as a possible means of salvation, such slavery to the law was inevitable. This reasoning is theologically impeccable, but it must have been a bitter pill for any Jew. All the more so because Jews prided themselves not only as being Abraham's seed, uh, but on being Isaac's offspring, not Ishmaelite, like the despised dwe desert dwellers of the Negev. The argument is unanswerable, and the tables have been turned completely on Paul's adversaries. Now let's look at another passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. This passage says, quote, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. End quote. Now let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. Quote, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, end quote. All of these passages I've taken the time to read say one thing loud and clear. We are no longer under the Mosaic law. I could read several more. I could spend this entire podcast just reading passages that say we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. But I think this is enough to suffice. We should remember that Paul's letters are just as inspired as the words of Jesus written in red ink in the Gospels. They are no less inspired than the words of Jesus written in red ink in the Gospels. I know that some people would try to argue otherwise, but we, um, but they're going against Scripture. In fact, Second Peter chapter three verses fifteen to sixteen, uh, whether. <laughs> This, uh, this passage says, quote, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. End quote. Let me read that again. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. End quote. Peter says some people twist Paul's words as they do the other scriptures. The phrase, as they do the other scriptures, implies that Peter thought that Paul's letters are scripture. This is very, this is very significant and has great apologetic value because it shows that even in the first century, when the Petrine epistles were being written, Paul's letters were already being recognized as being divinely inspired. This is not just something that came up uh, that was decided 200 years later, but I digress. Now let's read Acts chapter 15. I'm, I'm just going to read this entire chapter because it shows that we are not under this, the law, the ceremonial, sacrificial, cleanliness parts of the law anyway. And w that statement has apostolic authority. So Acts chapter 15, the entire chapter from the first verse to the last verse. Quote, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things from uh, known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers after spending some time there, and they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to uh, to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you that, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Uh, looks like I in inadvertently repeated a couple of the slides.
So that was Acts 15. Um, I don't know if I have to read the rest of this. This is just um, about uh, Paul and Barnabas, and then they're split because of, of Mark. Uh, doesn't really have anything to do uh, with the uh, Torah debate. But anyway, it's hard to read this chapter and conclude that we are still obligated to do things like abstain from shellfish, get circumcised eight days after birth, not trim the edges of our beard. Even if one could make, even if one could make the case that Jewish Christians are under the law, a case that I don't think can be made, but even if you made that case, at the very least, a Gentile believer like me is not obligated to do them. I, in fact, Gentiles have never been under the Mosaic law given at Sinai. That was a specific covenant, a contractual agreement between Yahweh and the people of Israel. So a Gentile like me was never under this to begin with. I'm not Jewish. I'm not even I'm not even Jew. I mean, maybe I have like 0.00005% Jewish DNA because somewhere maybe back in the 1600s one of my great 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 grandfathers were was Jewish or something. Maybe um but for all but for but as far as I can tell, I'm 100% Gentile. Uh, next passage and final passage that we're going to be using in our let scripture interpret scripture argument. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 verses 14 to 15. Quote, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. End quote. Here Paul says that Keeping the one command to love your neighbor as yourself fulfills the entire law. Keep in mind that Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40. He said, there are the, there, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40, Jesus said, there, the two greatest commandments is, number one, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second greatest command is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, on these two, all the law and the prophets hang. And when you stop to think about it, it makes sense. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you're not going to, you're not going to break the commandments that offend specifically him. You're not going to break the first commandment. You're not going to have any uh, any gods before him. You're not going to make graven images and bow down to them. You're going to be loyal to Yahweh. Uh, you're not going to take his name in vain, for example. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to do anything to hurt your neighbor. You're not going to kill him. You're not going to commit adultery with his wife. You're, you're not going to steal from him. Um, Jesus says, hey, if you focus on loving God and loving your neighbor, everything else is going to fall into place. You, just as a logical consequence of that. You're going to obey everything else. So you don't have to, yeah. Anyway, so what did Jesus mean? He didn't mean that we're still under the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. What all this means is every all of these passages I've just read mean that we are not under the Mosaic law anymore. We must therefore reject this interpretation of Jesus' words in Matthew 5.17 lest we have a contradiction in the inerrant and inspired word of God. 
God's word is inerrant in all that it intends to teach. It doesn't intend to teach cosmology, biology, or and zoology, so we don't need to we don't need to fret. We don't need to get worried over biblical passages that speak of a solid dome sky over a flat earth holding back cosmic waters, nor do we need to be concerned with the fact that bats are called birds. Uh, yes, the Twitter atheists love bringing up that example. They love bringing up the bats or birds verse. Um, no, science is not on the curriculum, but theology and soteriology certainly are. The Bible is inerrant in all that it intends to teach. Science is not on the curriculum, but theology and soteriology certainly are. We therefore must have no contradictions between biblical passages that do intend to actually teach something. The Holy Spirit is not schizophrenic. He doesn't have two personalities with one inspiring one author of one book to say one thing and another author of another book to say another thing. He's not inspiring one author to say we need to obey all 613 laws of the Torah and another book saying, uh, no, only the moral laws matter. However, this still leaves open the question of what Jesus actually did mean. Yes, let scripture interpret scripture. Yes, uh, we can't get accept this interpretation or else we're going to bring it into contradiction with the rest of the New Testament. But that still leaves the question mark. What did Jesus mean in Matthew chapter 5 verses uh, is it 15 to 18? What Jesus probably meant wasn't... What Jesus probably meant is that he wasn't abolishing the Old Testament. An important disclaimer, since he would go on uh, to talk as though he were contradicting it. Jesus probably meant he wasn't abolishing the Old Testament. This is an important disclaimer, given that he would go he would go on to say things that sound like he was contradicting it. He would go after this. He goes on to say things like, "You have heard it was said," and he quotes some Old Testament passage. He quotes from the from the, the law. He quotes one of the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. I think Jesus was referring to the entire Tanakh. That's what the, the Jews called the Old Testament from Genesis to Micah, or in their canon from Genesis to Chronicles, not even First and Second Chronicles. They're not divided that way in the Jewish canon. It's just Chronicles. Um, and Chronicles is the last book in the Old Testament canon, whereas Micah in the Protestant Christian Bible and maybe the, the Catholic Bible, too, I, I'd have to fact check that. Uh, Micah is the last one. Uh, Jesus is saying he's referring to the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And he it was this that he was cautioning his audience to think that he was not rejecting or overturning. Uh, Jews don't call the Tanakh the Old Testament because in their minds, they don't have a New Testament to supersede it. First, before I make my commentary on what Jesus did mean, I need—I first need to establish the phrase, that, that the phrase, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, that that did refer to the entire Old Testament canon. The phrase, the law and the prophets, was Second Temple Jew speak for the entire canon of Scripture. Genesis to Malachi, or Genesis to Chronicles, in their in in their ordering. 
Got questions here. The argument can be summed up in this short paragraph from a gotquestions.org article titled, What is the Bible referring to when it mentions the law and the prophets? Gotquestions.org says, quote, On the Emmaus Road, Jesus taught two disciples everything written about himself in the scripture, beginning with the law of Moses and, and the books of the prophets, Luke 24, 27, CEV. Clearly, all scripture indicated by the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. The same passage also contains a threefold division of the Old Testament. Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalm, verse 44. But the twofold division of the law and the prophets was also customary. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Acts chapter 13, verse 15, Acts chapter 24, verse 14, and Romans chapter 3, verse 21, end quote. Let's, let's read a few of those verses that gotquestions.org, uh, the, the gotquestions.org article reference. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Acts 13, 15. After this, reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Acts 24, 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a, fellow, as a follower of the way, which, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So Jesus is saying, don't think I've come to do away with the Old Testament. Don't think I've come to do away with the Tanakh. Not at all. In fact, not only is Genesis to Malachi, Genesis to First Chronicles still valid, but I'm fulfilling all of it. In verse 17, Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. Often the term the law and the prophets was used to refer to the entire Old Testament. Jesus could be saying that he has not come to, uh, he has come not to do away with the Old Testament, but to fulfill it in some sense or another. And I would say he fulfills it in multiple senses. Um, for one thing, Jesus fulfills messianic prophecies. The Old Testament prophesied about him and his coming. Oops, hold on, uh, and his coming. Uh, there are various passages in the Old Testament that says, you know, the Messiah would come and do this and that. You know, for example, Isaiah fifty-three and Psalm twenty-two prophesied about his death. Um, Isaiah seven says that the the Messiah would be born of a virgin and so on. Um, so Jesus fulfills messianic prophecies. For another, the entire Bible points to Jesus and the inauguration of his kingdom. Now, this isn't to say that every verse in the Old Testament is about Jesus, but rather that the entirety of the history recorded in the Old Testament narratives led up to Jesus' atoning sacrificial death and his resurrection, a sort of grand climax. Why did Jesus even bring up the law and the prophets anyway? Well, given what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5:21 and following, Jesus wanted to give his listeners a disclaimer. He was about to quote the Old Testament and then say, "But I say unto you." People might get the idea that Jesus was teaching that what their scripture said didn't matter anymore and that it was only his word his words that mattered. But this is not so. Indeed, as many commentators have noted, Jesus was correcting misunderstandings and misapplications of the Old Testament law. 
And it is this that Jesus does. This is evident from the fact that Jesus occasionally quotes things not even found in the Old Testament at all, such as, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, yes, love your enemy is, is in Leviticus, but nowhere does the Bible say, hate your enemy. Well, what about verse 19, which talks about commandments? Surely, this means that Jesus is talking about the law, as in the rules given at Sinai, not just the Old Testament simpliciter. Well, some have said that Jesus is here talking about the moral law rather than the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. D.A. Carson does not think that this is a good reading because Jesus does not explicitly divide the law of Moses up into these categories. However, I don't think this mitigates against such a view. Given that Jesus goes on to exposit many Old Testament laws, uh, for example, mur the, the command against murder, the command against adultery, um, and, and, he, and his commentary that murderous rage uh, and lust violates these commands. Um, he talks about divorce. He talks about swearing oaths. Uh, but the only laws that he gives commentary on are moral laws. Given that that's the case, I think it is probably right to say that Jesus has moral, com moral commands in view here, especially since he goes on to talk about uh, righteousness, specifically the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and says that our righteousness must surpass that. This is in Matthew 5.20, which comes on the heels of Matthew 5.19, where Jesus talks about being the least in the kingdom of heaven by setting aside commands and teaching others to do likewise. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus' Jesus's words could, ergo, be rephrased as, don't think that I've come to replace the Old Testament with my own teachings. No, not only is the Old Testament still valid, but I've come to fulfill it. I fulfill it by fulfilling messianic prophecies, living out the law perfectly, and the entirety of the Old Testament and the entirety of Old Testament history led up to this moment. Not only that, but not even the tiniest part of the law will disappear until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who chooses to misinterpret and misapply God's moral laws and teaches others accordingly will be least in the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees do this. They misinterpret and, mis and misapply God's law. You are to be better than them. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, allow me to tell you what the law really teaches about things like murder, adultery, and divorce. Here's a more um, in-depth look at how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. One, Jesus obeyed the moral demands of the law completely. John chapter 8, verse 46, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, because he was born under it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. By the way, again, if you're just tuning in, Leave your comments in the live chat. I will get to them after the presentation is over with. I've already noted that Jesus' disclaimer to not abolish the law and the prophets was because he was about to go on to 
comment on Old Testament moral laws in ways that would sound at face value as though he were disagreeing with the Old Testament. He wasn't. He was disagreeing with some of the interpretations of some of the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. He mentions uh, it was the scribes and the Pharisees he mentions in the same context as the ones who set aside the least of these commands and teaches others uh, accordingly. And it is the scribes and the Pharisees whose righteousness ours must surpass. I have to say, I, I find... I find Jesus really relatable here. When I talk about, say, Genesis 1, I have to make the disclaimer with young earth creationists all the time that, hey, I'm not disagreeing with God's word. I'm only disagreeing with your interpretation of God's word. I believe Genesis 1 is true. I just don't take your concordistic materialistic origins uh, seven-day material view of Genesis 1. So yeah, I feel you, Jesus. But there are other reasons Jesus may have felt the need to make this disclaimer. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has pointed out, given Jesus' way of asserting himself as an authority when giving certain teachings, uh, not doing things like ceremonial washing, doing things like healing on the Sabbath, naturally some people might wonder if Jesus had come to do away with God's commands. God, Jesus assures us that he hasn't come to abolish the word of God, but to fulfill it. Now let's go into more depth about the various ways Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. This list came from my Logos notes as I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Two, Jesus fulfilled the scripture that says that sin deserves death. His cross fulfilled God's promise that sin would be dealt with. Three, Jesus fulfilled all the messianic prophecies about him. And it's unfortunate that, that we don't have the time tonight to really get into messianic prophecies and, you know, what, what the prophecies were and how Jesus fulfilled them. Four, Jesus fulfilled Old Testament types. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones's book on the next slide where he expands on this fourth point. In his book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, on pages 196 to 197, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, We see also that in a most extraordinary and wonderful manner, by so dying upon the cross and bearing in himself uh, and upon himself the punishment due to sin, he has fulfilled all the Old Testament types. Go back again and read the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Read all about the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Read all about the tabernacle and the temple uh, ceremonial. All about the altar and the laver of washing and so on. Go back to those details and ask yourself, what do all these things mean? What are they for? The shoe bread and the high priest and the vessels and all these other things, what are they meant to do? They are nothing but shadows, types, prophecies of, uh, what, prophecies of what is going to be done fully and finally by the Lord Jesus Christ. He indeed has literally fulfilled and carried out and brought to pass every single one of those types. Some may be interested in this subject, and there are 
some may be interested in this subject, and there are certain books in which you may find out all the details. But the principle, the great truth, is just this. Jesus Christ, by his death and all he has done, is an absolute fulfillment of all these types and shadows. He is the high priest, he is the offering, he is the sacrifice, and he has presented his blood in heaven so that the whole of the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in him. Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. By his death and resurrection and the presentation of himself in heaven, he has done all this. End quote. So here's the conclusion. Here's my here's how I read that this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wasn't saying that we had to obey all 613 Torah laws. Rather, he was saying he had not come to do away with the Tanakh, a.k.a. the Old Testament. Jesus made this disclaimer for two reasons. One, he would go on later in the Sermon on the Mount to quote the Old Testament and then immediately say, but I say unto you, giving the face value appearance that he was disagreeing with the Old Testament. Two, Jesus' conduct of healing on the Sabbath, not doing the ceremonial hand-washing, etc., would also give people the impression that Scripture doesn't matter to him. In fact, Jesus said that not only did he not come, away, uh, did he not come to do away with the Old Testament, he came to fulfill it, and this he did in numerous ways. He does speak of commandments and speaks negatively of setting aside even the least of them verse 19, but these are moral commandments, not ceremonial or, or sacrificial laws. This is evident in the fact that Jesus's commentary pertained only to moral issues, still binding on Christians today. Uh, for example, murder, adultery, divorce. There is no debate that Christians ought not to murder, commit adultery. Um, I mean, there is some debate on the divorce aspect, but it's really about what what exceptions are suitable, and I'll get to that later on in the series. Uh, but G yeah, um, it's it was only Jesus. Jesus never said, "You have heard that it was said, you cannot eat shellfish." But I say unto you, or you ha you have heard that it was said, "You shall not trim the edges of your beard." But I say unto you, He never said, "You have heard that it was said, um, a, a baby born on." Uh, must be circumcised eight days after his birth. But I say unto you, no, he never commented on any of those parts. He said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say unto you, you have heard that it was said, you get the point. The scribes and the Pharisees misinterpreted and misapplied Old Testament moral laws. That's why he said what he said in verse 19. Verse 19 comes on the heels of verse 20, where Jesus speaks of the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness not being enough to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that our righteousness must surpass theirs. With that in mind, let's read the passage again. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, quote, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. Now, let me make an even if, but in fact argument, or I guess I suppose that in the order that I've done it, it's a but in fact even if argument. Let's assume for the sake of the argument that when Jesus says the law and the prophets and the law, <coughs> excuse me, um, <clears throat> that he's really talking about the entire, uh, just the entire Torah, the to not, not the entire Old Testament canon, but the Torah, and specifically what it says we're supposed to do and don't do. What exactly follows from that? What if our Hebrew roots, Judaizing friends, are right? What follows from that? Well, as R.L. Solberg, as R.L. Solberg put it in his own video on Matthew 5, 17 to 18, I finally got his name right. Probably helps that I had it written down in my notes. <laughs> Uh, as R.L. Solberg put it in his own video on Matthew 5, 17 to 18, you should notice uh, that Jesus, what, you should notice what Jesus says. He says that it won't pass away until some condition is met. Heaven, until what? Until heaven and earth pass away? Until all is accomplished? Both? Based on what we find elsewhere in the New Testament, I would suggest it's the latter. Even if we assume that this is about the law, the, 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 you know, the laws, the uh, do's and don'ts in the early part of the Old Testament, Jesus places a time limit on the law. Not an iota will pass until all is accomplished. Here's the thing. Much more than an iota changed after Jesus' resurrection. I'm, I'm going to give you three examples, but there are more. One, temple sacrifices required in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11, and verse 15. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says Christians instead, quote, ha ha have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, end quote. Therefore, quote, there is no longer any offering for sin, end quote. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. The law of Moses required an offering for sin, and after Jesus' death and resurrection, there is no longer any offering for sin. The doing away of temple sacrifices is a huge change to the law. Now, we might argue that God's law about sin has not changed. God's law still requires blood atonement, and Christians still have a blood offering for sin. It's the eternal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that's exactly correct. That is what is behind what R.L. Solbert calls the principle, of, uh, the principle and expression framework. Nevertheless, this is still a change. If there's any change in the law, which is pretty evident from these New Testament passages, and if we can all agree that heaven and earth have not passed away, heaven and earth have not passed away, I'm pretty sure the world would have noticed if heaven and earth passed away. Heaven and earth was a, a Hebraic term for the entire universe. Then we must interpret the condition on which the law would pass away as until all has been accomplished. 
Secondly, circumcision required in Torah. Leviticus, see Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says, quote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith walking, uh, working through love. Third change. All priests must come from the tribe of Levi. Torah says in Exodus chapter 40, verses 12 to 15, and uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, that priests must be from the tribe of Levi, and specifically descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. That's what the Torah says. But the New Testament says Jesus is our high priest. See Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. But he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. A high priest from the tribe of Judah is a change. These three are just a few of the changes that occurred. We don't sacrifice animals anymore in the Jerusalem temple. There, is no, there, there, there isn't even a Jerusalem temple anymore. It was destroyed in AD 70. Josephus records this. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. Because we have the crucified Jesus to atone for our sins. We don't get circumcised anymore unless it's for medical health benefits. I was circumcised as a baby, but I highly doubt it was for uh, Torah reasons. Uh, because it happened on the same day that I was born. It was probably for the, you know, the medical benefits. You know, I, I've heard, I, I have heard that it reduces things like, like the odds of penile cancer and things like that. that there's, some, there's some medical benefits for it. But uh, my parents are not Jewish, and neither am I, so pretty sure it wasn't for that. Paul specifically says in the book of Galatians that it doesn't count for anything. It doesn't matter. Finally, the priesthood has changed. Um, now... In Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, he talks to a couple of his disciples. And guess what? We have very similar language as in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Very, simil very similar language about the law and the prophets and fulfillment. Let's read it. Math Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. Quote, Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. End quote. So here's the application portion. Why, why does all of this matter? Well... First, it, this will help you answer modern-day Judaizers. There are sadly those in Messianic Jewish sects that think we ought to be, well, Gentiles too. Um, the Hebrew Roots Movement, uh, Torah Observant Christians, whatever you want to call them. Uh, R.L. Solberg calls it uh, Torahism. It's on, it, it, I, it's on the rise. I'm seeing it more and more. Uh, it seems to be rising as just as much as another false teaching known as progressive Christianity. Maybe I ought to focus less on refuting atheism and more on refuting <laughs> uh, 
progressive Christianity and Torahism because these seem to be the two dominant uh, errors of the twenty of the twenty of the twenty twenties. If atheism was the dominant error of the twenty tens, then these two are surely the dominant errors of twenty twenties, or at least it seems that way to me. Of course, I'd you know I'd still focus on the Kalam cosmological argument and stuff. Don't worry about that. Um, yeah, don't, don't, no, don't get me wrong. Again, not all Jewish Christians are like this. The Apostle Paul wasn't like this. Peter wasn't like this. The original Christians were, the, original, the apostles were Jewish, and they did not, they were not Judaizers. They argued against the Judaizers. Um, many Messianic Jews recognize that the Old Covenant has been replaced with the New Covenant. But there are those who are well-meaning but misguided. Matthew 5, 17-28 is one proof text that they will appeal to in order to try to convince you that you ought to practice Jewish customs. Embrace Jesus as Messiah, yes, but still obey the law of Moses. Now, we should definitely obey God's moral laws, like the Ten Commandments. Not every command in the Old Testament is, uh, is no longer binding. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not kill, are as binding now as they were when God first uttered those words to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai all those thousand year, of the, thousands of years ago. These are grounded in God's unchanging moral character. But I am free to get tattoos, shave my beard, eat shellfish, pork, and not be forced to go to Jerusalem once a year to give a priest a lamb to slaughter. By the way, uh, Wretched has a very good short video on YouTube talking about the Old Testament laws and the three ways uh, Christian scholars deal with them. Uh, for example, you know, uh, that, is how, that is to say how we know uh, from the Old Testament what still applies and what doesn't. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, I think I will leave the uh, link to it in the live chat. There we go. I don't know if links work in live chat or not. Maybe not. If not, uh, I might leave it in a pinned comment or something. I hope that didn't mess up my slides. No, it didn't. Um, secondly, you can rest easy knowing that you don't have to keep 613 laws, many of which would be very hard to do in the modern day, just because it wasn't meant to be followed in 21st century America. Or <laughs> it was meant to be followed in Israel during a very specific time period. One specific part of the world for one specific time period. You don't have to be worried about God being mad at you if you didn't give a priest a lamb to slaughter in Jerusalem. You don't have to ask him for forgiveness for all the ham sandwiches you've ever eaten. Mark chapter 7 verse 9 says that Jesus declared all foods clean. Although I do wonder what he would think about pineapple pizza. I still recommend paying close attention to the laws given in the Old Testament. We can still learn... Okay, now discernment can tell you whether what you're reading is a moral command or just some ritual uh, that only Jews before the time of Christ were required to do. Thirdly, the Old Testament is, is still important. Read it. 
study it. Another takeaway from this is the importance of the Old Testament. No, we are not to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Jesus considered the Old Testament important. He quoted it many times as authoritative, as did the gospel authors, as did Paul. Jesus said he did not come to abolish them. And while I need not fret over what kind of animal to take to Jerusalem or whether I'm allowed to shave, I can still glean wisdom from the book of Proverbs, which if I obey, things will go much better for me in my life. I can still learn about God's attributes, his love, his faithfulness, and so on from the book of Psalms. I can still gain insight from the faith hall of famers that Hebrews 11 talks about going way back and reading those narratives. I can see God's plan of redemption unfold by reading the historical narratives from Genesis 1 all the way up to the return from Babylon and how the, the whole of Israel's history, God was preparing the way for Messiah. Indeed, the Old Testament has much to teach us. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, quote, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. End quote. When Paul penned these words, he didn't merely have the New Testament in mind. He had the Old Testament in mind as well. All scripture is inspired by God and is therefore important. For the believer. You should read it. You should study it. I recommend getting books such as John Walton's The Lost World series, uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, The Lost World of the Flood, The Lost World of the Torah, The Lost World of Scripture, The Lost World of, Can of the Canaanites. I and I recently found out that he's writing another Lost World book that's, gonna, that's called The Lost World of the Prophets, and that should be coming out at some point soon. I also would recommend getting Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Uh, Peter Inns' book, Inspiration and Incarnation, is really good. Uh, read some Ben Stanhope. Get the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. Listen to Michael Heiser's The Naked Bible Podcast. Um, the Old Testament is extremely interesting. It's not just important, but it is extremely interesting. More interesting than I you know, most of my Christian life I ever thought it was, especially the primeval history, which I plan on writing a book about soon, sometime this year. Um, the Old Testament is God's word to us. It's the Bible that Jesus read. If Jesus thought it was important, we should too. Read it, study it, meditate on it. And that concludes tonight's presentation. Now, if you have any questions, please leave them in the live chat. We don't have very many people showed up, showing up tonight, which I was surprised at because I thought tonight would be, if there was any night when we would have half a dozen or a dozen people showing up, it would be this, it would be this one because a lot of people have questions about this uh, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. But I'm only seeing one eyeball in the um, StreamYard dashboard. But if you, Mr. One Person, 
have a have a, a comment, leave it in the even leave it in the live chat. Right here. And I'll show it, I'll pull it up on screen and I'll answer it. To the best of my ability. By the way, if you would like more apologetics content, blog, podcast, videos, check out www.cerebralfaith.net. By the way, I recently put out a video uh, that's titled, I think it's titled, How to Navigate Cerebralfaith.net. So if navigating the website, if you find that a little bit difficult, you can watch that and you should know where to find everything, how to navigate all the blog posts and, and videos and stuff. Um, cause I have some people ask me whether you, they, they ask me questions and I'm just like, you, you could have gone to this page and read this article. It's like, it's like right over here. Um, I, I think, and then some people say, Hey, have you, have you ever written anything on this? I'm like, well, if you've just gone over here, you would have seen it. So I'm like, people must be having trouble navigating the website. So that's why I decided to make that because it is a lot different from the original website which was just bl a blog spot blog because that's all cerebral faith used to be it just used to be a blog that was on blogspot that was free and i would go into my google account go into blogger and just start typing away but now I, i'm on wordpress and it's a, a more professional looking website it's more than just a blog now uh so quite as easy to navigate, I, I guess, as the original blogger blog. By the way, if you'd like to support this ministry financially, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Be, be a big help and you would get some benefits as well. Now, next Saturday, again, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's, that's, that's going to be the normal time slot going forward because it is the date that I can rely on most that I won't have to go into work. Um, it's, it's still a gamble, but it's the one I can rely on most. So I've been able to do several Saturdays in a row, so that's when you, that's when you should come back. Next Saturday, we will be talking about Anger and murder and what Jesus has to say about that. You've heard it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, don't even get angry with the brother. Um, by the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, do take a minute to like the video and subscribe. Um, Likes help with the YouTube alg algorithm, and uh, I currently have 402 subscribers. I just need, like, 598 more in order to meet one of the requirements for YouTube monetization. The other one being, I think, like, 4,000 watch hours. Well, we're not... This is the Q&A portion of the, of the episode, and so far nobody has any questions so i'm just going to cut it off here 
Uh, I want to give a shout out to my patrons, David Shannon, Red Blade Flame, Steel Cat, Slam RN, Andrew Melnick, Nathan Hamilton, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to uh, become a Cerebral Faith patron, go to www.patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. Peace out, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you.